Today's Old Testament reading comes from Psalm chapter 27, verses 1 to 6, and can be found on page 557 of the Church Bibles. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. As his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with joy, shouts of joy, and I will sing and make music to the Lord. Today's New Testament reading comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, and can be found on page 1235 of the Church Bibles. 1235. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the world, whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we continue our sermon series in the seven churches of Revelation. And as before, it will be helpful if you have the text or the passage in front of you, because we'll be going straight through the passage. So um, you might want to have that out. Let's go, Lord, in prayer as we prepare to hear the preaching of the word. 
Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we might truly understand. And understanding that we may believe. And believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. So as we prepare now to study Jesus' words to the church at ancient Philadelphia, I wonder if you would agree with me on this. I wonder if you would agree with me that it's tough being on the outside looking in. Do you know what I mean when I say on the outside looking in? Anyone heard that before? A little bit? Somewhat? Okay. Uh, Let me give you an example. I'll give you an example of being on the outside looking in. I'll give it to you from the world of travel, a a world that um, I have some familiarity with, and many of you do too. Uh, Sometimes when you're seated at the front of the economy class section of the airplane, you can see what's happening in the business class or the first class section of the airplane, right? Uh, You can see the pre-takeoff glass of champagne being served. You can see the post-takeoff glass of champagne being served. Uh, You can see those chic little amenity kits being handed out with their sweet-smelling lotions and their soothing potions. Um, You can see round after round after round of appetizers and entrees and snacks and drinks being delivered to the people in those lie-flat seats and those comfy blankets and soft pillows, right? All this you can see as you are seated there hour after hour after hour, bolt upright with 10 people across, in a seat measuring less than a half a meter wide, eating, if you're lucky, some overcooked pasta and some indistinguishable chicken, and perhaps even getting a refill on your Coke. Okay, anyone been there, done that? Okay, been there, done that, all of us, right? Okay, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that here in such a scenario, while it's only a thin cloth curtain that separates you from the people in front of you, it might as well be a thick glass wall. A thick glass wall. Yes, seated there in the front of the economy section, you are definitely on the outside looking in. And it's tough, right? It's tough, tough being excluded from what other people are enjoying. Okay, so that's a superficial example that I just gave. But in life, there are actually many occasions for feeling like you are on the outside looking in. When you're dealing with something really horrible and heartbreaking in your life, and you watch everyone around you just going on with their lives, carefree, happy, content, well, it can feel like you're on the outside looking in. Or when you can't afford what everyone else can afford, when you can't afford what the people around you can afford, and you see them enjoying certain things, you can feel sometimes then, too, like you're on the outside looking in. Or if you're a student, and, well, you're not a part of the circle of friends that you want to be part of, or you're not part of a a professor's circle of students that you want to be a part of, 
In this case, too, you can feel like you're on the outside looking in. You can feel excluded from what other people are enjoying. And it's tough, like I said. Tough to endure, tough to take, which is probably, probably why Jesus has a soft spot, spot in his heart for the church at Philadelphia. You see, believers there in that church in Philadelphia, they are definitely on the outside looking in. And because of this, Jesus has very warm feelings for them, as we'll see. But his warm feelings for them are not just on account of the fact that they are on the outside looking in. No, these feelings have to do with how they've responded to being on the outside looking in. And what they've done in reaction to the situation they're faced with. So let's now look together at what's happening there in the original city of brotherly love. Let's look at how Jesus reviews and rates the church there in ancient Philadelphia. And from this, from this, maybe we too can learn something. Maybe we too can learn something about how to respond if and when we find ourselves on the outside looking in. As many of you know, in ancient Philadelphia, um, this was located in uh, what is modern-day Turkey. And it was a town that was located in a very unstable volcanic region, uh, subject to earthquakes quite often, apparently. Uh, this town, in fact, of ancient Philadelphia had been built and rebuilt several times because of the earthquake activity in that area. But the volcanic surroundings uh, weren't all bad for them. Apparently, they had soil, volcanic soil, that was excellent for grape growing and thus for wine making. Uh, think Mount Etna here in Sicily, right? And those nice Etna Rossos that they have there, right? Volcanic soil, good for the production of wine. And it was a similar situation there in ancient Philadelphia. And for this reason, believe it or not, a Philadelphian vintage was highly prized in the ancient world, not something you really hear about today from the Philadelphia in the United States. All right, so the situation there in Philadelphia, get the picture here that it's an unstable situation for that city, the city built on volcanic rock. But if it was unstable for the people there in that city, it was even more unstable for the people there in that church in Philadelphia. This because of the opposition they faced in that city of brotherly love. This opposition they faced left them on the outside looking in. And it was coming, as Bible scholars will tell us, from mainly two sources. From the synagogue community there and from the local government there. This is where the opposition was coming from that had these people on the outside looking in. Let's just talk about the first about the synagogue situation there in Philadelphia. So, very similar. Some of you may have been reminded of the situation here in Smyrna. So it's very similar to what was going on in Smyrna. Many members of the Christian church in Philadelphia were Jewish people who had formerly belonged to the traditional Orthodox Jewish uh, synagogue there in Philadelphia. Before they had become followers of Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, these Jewish believers were traditional observant Jews. And as traditional observant Jews, they were part of the religious and social life there of the synagogue in Philadelphia. 
Here now where it starts getting tough for those people, for those Jewish people who have become believers in Jesus Christ. It's thought that for a while at least, for a while, these Jewish people who had embraced Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, it's thought for a while at least they were still allowed to be part of synagogue life. They were allowed to participate in the life of the Jewish community that was centered around this synagogue there in Philadelphia. But now as Jesus writes to them in his letter, this has all changed. At some point, because of their belief in Jesus, these Jewish Christians had been kicked out, turned out, driven out. They had been banished from the synagogue and not allowed to be part of this observant, traditional Jewish community there in Philadelphia. So as a result, these believers are definitely on the outside looking in with respect to community life in the synagogue community, in the synagogue. They are on the outside looking in, both socially and religiously. But their being on the outside looking in isn't limited just to the religious and the social. It seems they're also on the outside looking in financially, financially. There are indications in historical documents that the synagogue Jews tried to ruin the church Jews financially by keeping them out of the labor unions and the trade guilds and forbidding those in the Jewish community, the traditional observant Jewish community, from doing any business with them, blacklisted, if you will. So in this way, too, those Jewish Christians are on the outside looking in. It's a financial thing. But it's not only a synagogue matter, as I mentioned before. This extends to how the Jewish Christians are also being treated by the civic government there in Philadelphia. Reacting to the demands of the powerful Jewish community there, the city rulers are apparently going out of their way to keep the believers there on the margins of society. They're harassing them, haranguing them for their belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and not Caesar. Again, these are echoes from some of the other churches as well, right? We've seen this in some of the other churches we've looked at. They're making life difficult for these Christians. The civic government is there in Philadelphia because their ultimate allegiance is not to Caesar. It's to Jesus Christ. So politically and legally too, you might say that these believers in Philadelphia are on the outside looking in. Not only are they being shut out of the Jewish community, they're being shut out of the Roman community there too. And so it's no wonder then that Jesus uses these words, these words to introduce himself to these believers in Philadelphia. He says this, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Huh. Do you notice in what Jesus says here, do you notice in what Jesus says here? This emphasis that he and he alone has the power to open and shut things. I ultimately am the one who holds the key, Jesus tells these folks. And he holds the most important key of all. As the royal messianic offspring of David, you see the reference to David there in the text. He says, I hold the key to the eternal kingdom of God. And I can open the eternal kingdom of God and close the eternal kingdom of God to anyone I choose. That's what Jesus is saying with these words of introduction. 
I hold the key. And so the message Jesus is trying to communicate to these people is this. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. These people who are making life difficult for you, they do not hold the keys to your eternal destiny. Only I do. They can't open or shut anything with regard to eternity. Only I can. And so ultimately, you have nothing to fear. So in that introduction, these are encouraging words from Jesus right from the start for the Philadelphian believers. And it gets even more encouraging now as Jesus starts the performance review of the church. As usual, Jesus starts out with kind words, nice words, words of commendation. What's going right? Remember, we compare this to performance reviews in an employment situation. Jesus starts out with saying something nice about the church here. In the case of Philadelphia, he's got a lot nice to say. So much, in fact, that we're going to deal with the commendation uh, in three parts because it's so long compared to especially the other churches he's reviewed. This is what Jesus says first. Verse 8 I'm looking at. He says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one else, that no one could shut. So once again, once again, Jesus here makes a reference about these believers not being shut out of anything. This theme of not being shut out is one he wants to highlight again and again to these people who have been shut out. This church on the outside looking in. These are people who have been excluded from fully enjoying the religious, cultural, financial, political life of their society. Jesus, though, has seen what these people have been up to, his, his believers, his own there in the church. He's seen their faithfulness. He's seen their fruitfulness. He's seen their faith, their hope, and their love. And in response, he says that he's opened the kingdom to them, opened its door to them. So ultimately, these believers in Philadelphia, they will not be counted among the excluded. They will be counted among the included. This because they are and they will be included in the glorious reality of God's kingdom. This kingdom of perfect joy and peace, his kingdom of justice and mercy. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to them in his commendation. But the good news doesn't end there for Philadelphia. This is now how Jesus continues. And this is middle of verse 8. He says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So the believers there are weary. They're weary. Jesus notes here that they have little strength. Their strength has no doubt been depleted by the ill treatment they've received at the hands of those in the synagogue and city hall. But even in their state of weariness, even after being beaten down, beaten down, they've persevered. They've persevered. They've continued to obey Jesus' commands and they have not renounced their faith in him. Even under pressure, even under pressure, they have remained true. 
They've continued, and this is the key, they've continued to live the lives that Christ has called them to be, even though it was of no advantage to them, and in fact, just the opposite. It was of disadvantage to them to continue to be fruitful and faithful followers of Jesus Christ. But for this, for this sacrifice they have made for the name of Jesus, they, the almost vanquished, will someday become the fully, fully victorious. We read that those who are persecuting them now, the synagogue Jews, will metaphorically speaking at least, someday fall at their feet. In other words, when Christ comes again, these believers in Philadelphia, they will be exalted when Christ comes again. While their enemies will be humbled. Or to put it another way, they will now be on the inside looking out while their enemies will be on the outside looking in. Before we move on, let me just clarify something that some of you might be wondering about. Um, some of you might have noticed Jesus' comment here that the synagogue Jews are not really Jews. He says this to them. And some of us might remember this again from the church at Smyrna. Jesus said the exact same thing to the church at Smyrna. So what he's saying here is that he no longer considers these Jewish people in the synagogue who have rejected him as Messiah. He no longer considers them to be Jewish in the sense they are no longer part of the covenant community, those who belong to him. So it's not an ethnic distinction Jesus is making here. It's a spiritual distinction that Jesus is making here. The statement is about whom he considers now or who he considers now to be members of his covenant community. And this is now only those who have faith in him, no one else. Okay, move on to the final section of the commendation, the good stuff. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, Jesus says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Okay, so once again, the believers are commended for persevering through difficult circumstances. They've endured with patience, Jesus says. And as a result, he makes a promise to them. He makes a promise to them to keep the Philadelphian believers from the hour of trial that is to come. So, Christians have typically understood Jesus' words here about keeping the believers from the hour of trial in two different ways. There's probably more, but two different interpretations that I believe exist probably in this sanctuary as well, right? So some Christians believe that this, this promise Jesus makes here of not removing the Philadelphian believers from any trouble to come, about removing the Philadelphian believers from any trouble to come, protecting them from it, uh, Many believers understand Jesus' words here as a promise, a promise that he will be near to them, he will be close to them, he will help them persevere through the rough times that will inevitably present themselves in the future. Okay? He's not going to take them out of it, literally. He's just going to be near them. He's going to keep them safe. Okay, so if you are into theological uh, categorizations, uh, this would be the amillennial view, the amillennial view or amillennial view of what Jesus is promising here. 
Okay. Other Christians, though, other Christians believe that Jesus' words here about keeping the Philadelphian believers from the hour of trial, uh, they believe it as a promise of the rapture. And there are those here among us that I'm sure that believe that, would, would go with that understanding of Jesus' words. Uh, it's a promise that these believers will, at the advent of the tribulation, be completely removed from the earth and all the troubles in it. And again, if you're into theological classifications, this would be a classic pre-millennialist uh, point of view. Okay, so we can argue about this as Christians until Christ comes again, or the rapture, depending on your point of view, right? Um, do we want to have a vote right here? Which, which is the right interpretation? No? All right. We could argue about it, but I think it's probably just best to agree here that Christ's words here are a promise of never-ending eternal care for his people, Right? Never-ending eternal care for his weary, oppressed, patiently waiting people. And I'm hoping we can all say amen to that. Amen? Amen. All right, good. Can we move on? Good. Okay, so that was the commendation section, the commendation section of Jesus' performance review of the church at Philadelphia. Obviously, there are difficult circumstances the church finds themselves in here. And the beautiful thing is that the, the Christians there are on the whole and in the main meeting Christ's expectations. Normally now, what would occur in one of the reviews is a complaint section, right? Commendation, complaint. But amazingly, in this particular review, it's only one of two there's no complaint. Jesus has no beef, so to speak, with this church. No complaint, no criticism. Instead, he just wants them to continue what they're doing. Keep on. And this is what he says, verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Hold on to what you have. In other words, stay the course. Continue to do what you're doing. See that you finish the race well so that you can Keep your crown. So this crown, this metaphorical crown that's being referred to, this is not the crown of kings. No, this is the crown that an athlete receives. It's a wreath crown. It's a crown that you get for running the race well. And so what Jesus is saying here is, this, is if they continue to run the race well, no one will take the reward of eternal life. Okay, so now we're on to the final part of the review, and that's the consequence part, the consequence. Jesus tells the believers in Philadelphia here what consequences they can expect and how they respond to his message here. And not surprisingly, given the rest of the review, Jesus only speaks of positive consequences here. No negative consequences, only positive consequences. Let's read the first. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. So some of you, I suspect, have heard uh, the English language phrase, she's a pillar in the community, or he's a pillar in that church. Right? That's a pretty common saying in many circles. So it means that that person in that particular setting is a person of distinction, a person of importance. They're valued. Uh, there's someone who who has a presence in that community, someone who has staying power in that community. They're not like here today and gone tomorrow. No, they're a pillar in that community. 
And so it will be for those Philadelphian believers in the eternal kingdom of God. Because they persevered through the persecution, they will be permanent and prized members of the kingdom of God. No longer will they be shut out. No longer will they be on the outside looking in. No, they will be welcomed into the presence of God. They will be pillars in the eternal kingdom of Christ the King. Now the second consequence, and again, it's a positive one. This is what Jesus says. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So on these believers who have persevered there in Philadelphia, Jesus is going to write three names. Three names. First, the name of God the Father. Second, the name of the new Jerusalem, the the new heavens and the new earth. And third, it's going to be Jesus' own name, actually a newer version of his name. So why all the name writing? Why all the name writing? Well, tell me this. Again, let's go back to a travel example. When you go to the, the, uh, the airport, why do you make sure that your name is on your luggage? Why do you have a, a, a luggage tag that you write your name on? Well, it's about belonging, isn't it? A name on something shows belonging. This name business is about belonging. And so the positive consequences for those believers in ancient Philadelphia is that they will belong. They will belong to God the Father. They will belong in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth. And they will belong forever to Jesus Christ. And again, back to the original theme, they will no longer be on the outside looking in. They will be on the inside looking out. And this this for eternity. Okay, that's a meaty passage, lots to get through. I'd like for us just now to reflect. Reflect on what we, as a 21st century church in Zurich, can take away from Jesus' words to a 1st century church in Philadelphia. So maybe it has to do with this issue of being on the outside looking in. On the outside looking in. Many Christians in the Western world, this is my sense, many Christians in the Western world, I I read about these days, many Christians in in the Western world that I hear from these days, they fear that society is moving in such a way that they already are or will be soon on the outside looking in. They fear that their society is heading in such a direction that there will be no place for people of true faith. No place for them in government. No place for them in corporations. No place for them in academia. No place for them in the entertainment industry. No place for them in the arts. No place for them in the sports world. No place for them in their local communities. Christians on both the left and the right believe That if they speak truth, God's truth, they will be dismissed, disallowed, rejected, excluded. They believe that if they speak truth, they will be on the outside looking in. 
So let me offer just three short thoughts, three short thoughts about this, if you're thinking along these lines. And I think many people are these days, from, again, just from my interactions with many of you and what I read uh, in the, um, on the internet or in books. Let me start with this thought. As we've learned from the Church of Philadelphia, this whole, with regard to this whole issue of the outside looking in, as we learned this morning from the example of the Church of Philadelphia, this wouldn't be the first time this has happened. This wouldn't be the first time this has happened. And in fact, one might argue that true believers, true believers have always been to some degree on the outside looking in in society. And this because no society anywhere at any time has ever even come close to reflecting the character and the essence of the kingdom of God. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that for genuine disciples of Jesus Christ, there has always been an outside-looking-in element to their existence on this earth and the relationship to the society they live in. And so perhaps we should adjust our expectations accordingly, more in line with kind of the words of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John. And you can go and read that and see what I'm talking about here. The fact is that true followers of Jesus Christ will never fit in with the society they're part of. At least not completely. They never have. They never will. And so we shouldn't expect to. That's a thought. Let me offer a second thought. If in our lives here on planet Earth we're going to be concerned with being on the outside looking in, let's be most concerned about being on the outside looking in when it comes to the kingdom of God. It's this concern, this concern on the, being on the outside looking into the kingdom of God that more than any should dominate our thoughts, direct our actions, inform our priorities, shape our agendas. This because being on the inside of the kingdom of God, being part of his eternal kingdom of joy and peace, uh, justice and mercy, this is what ultimately and eternally counts more than anything else. More than being on the inside of government, on the inside of business, on the inside of academia, sports world, arts, entertainment, whatever. Now, Maybe to some of us that sounds like I'm calling for withdrawal from society and its institutions. Not at all. Far from it. The tradition I come from is a tradition that embraces involvement in this world. I'm not talking about withdrawal, abandonment, indifference, passivity. I'm just calling for perspective. Just for some perspective. Some perspective about which kingdom is ultimately the most important kingdom to be part of. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, as we read in Matthew. Embracing the kingdom of God and its values, its priorities, its attitudes, its behaviors. This is what's ultimately most important. This is what we ultimately should be most concerned about, being part of that kingdom. 
Last thought very quickly. So if any of us do have fears about us or our children or our grandchildren ending up in a society uh, where they're on the outside looking in, we should just know that it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who holds the most important key that there is. And it's the one that opens and shuts the door to the kingdom of God. If we or our kids or grandkids belong to him, if his name is written on us, we will never ever truly be on the outside looking in in this life or the next. Even if we were to be shut out of every institution and organization on planet Earth, if we by grace and through faith belong to Jesus Christ, we will be people who are very much on the inside looking out. But I have to add here, not just for our own benefit, right? Not just for our own benefit. No, we will be people on the inside looking out at a world that desperately needs our message of salvation and hope through Jesus Christ. We will be people on the inside looking out at a world that desperately needs our acts of kindness, our acts of compassion, our acts of love, our acts of reconciliation. We will be on the inside looking out at a world that desperately needs our witness to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. In other words, we will be on the inside looking out, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of this world and for the glory of God. So may God, through his spirit, give us, like he gave those in the ancient church in Philadelphia, may he give us, in difficult circumstances, the power to endure, the power to, to live faithfully. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Please join me in prayer. Father, assure us through your spirit that if we belong to you, we are definitely on the inside looking out. And we thank you for your kingdom, Lord, your perfect kingdom of joy and peace, of justice and mercy. And we pray that this kingdom would be our prize more than any other kingdom on this earth. Lord, change our hearts so that we would desire the things of you and your kingdom. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.